I want to say uh, welcome too to um, not only Blaze and uh, Claire, but also Spencer and Jim and Janet, uh, the rest of Blaze's family. So thank you guys for coming today. I, I hear there's a birthday party coming in a week's time. We're, ke- we're keeping that quiet, are we, Janet? Okay, okay. Good to have you guys with us here today. A uh, real blessing to uh, have you come and join with us as we come and fellowship and uh, love Jesus. Um, so for those with kids, if you did want a pencil pack, there is something down the back there for that. Kids, not adults, okay? Kids, that's for the pencil pack support, just in case you're getting worried there. Yeah, I know, yeah, someone wants the pencil pack. Down the back, if you want to grab one of those, you can uh, go for it. Uh, we are still in our series, and we've only got this week and one other week for What Does That Mean?, where we've asked people to uh, send in to us various passages of Scripture that they've actually thought, well, I've read it, but I don't quite get it. Now, what does that mean? So uh, today's passage is from Ephesians, but just before we get there... Um, I'm not sure if any of you saw a movie last year called uh, Hidden Figures. Anybody see that film? Very good film. Very good film. Um, there's not too many good films you can go to these days at the cinema, but this actually was a good one. Laura and I went to it somewhere. Was it Shep or Bendigo? Somewhere. Anyway, we saw this film called Hidden Figures. It was a film about three black American ladies uh, working Uh, in the 1960s at NASA during the Apollo uh, moon missions. And really it was a story of racial divide, actually, uh, as you follow this story through. Uh, These uh, black ladies uh, only, sorry, uh, back then blacks only could sit on certain seats on particular buses. So there was was a spot written on the back of the bus uh, for blacks only. Then if more white people got on the bus, the black people would have to hop off their seat and actually give the seat to the white people. Uh, if you follow this movie through as well, well, one of these ladies got promoted to um, a sort of a higher up part of the NASA area. But in that um, area, there was no black toilets. So for people who were black, they had to actually leave the building and go right across the other side of the compound to a black person's toilet and then walk right past all the white people's toilets. And it's just a real picture here of what it was like just a few decades here of this racial divide. Uh, in, it was really was like an oppression or, or, or a segregation here of blacks versus whites. And it really was a real eye-opener for me to just see that domination and that oppression that was taking place really within just my own lifetime by just uh, maybe a handful of years. Um, well, this hasn't just happened over the last few decades of this sort of racial divide. It's actually been right down through the ages. Uh, sinful racial tension has gone on for all time. And uh, we're going to see it here again in Ephesus as uh, we look at this passage, but also going to see how the gospel breaks down these barriers through Jesus Christ. So if you've got your Bibles, uh, please turn them to Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to read from verses 11 through to 22. Verse 11, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. 
by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then... You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Father, we want to give you thanks uh, now that we can come together around your word. We ask and pray that, Holy Spirit, you would come and you would open up our eyes and open up our ears and open up our hearts and our minds to see the glorious truth of the gospel here that really does smash racial tension. As your word so poignantly says there for us, you have killed the hostility. Please help us to see that today and to work it out through our lives, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Um, So the question was, uh, in this what does this mean, really was what does this whole passage mean? It wasn't sort of a direct question about what does this one verse mean. Uh, This particular person said, look, what does the verses 11 to 22 mean? What's it all about? So that's what we're going to look at today here as we think about uh, this passage. And uh, this book of Ephesians really is a mighty book of the Bible. It's a glorious book of the Bible. There's so much truth here about God and his sovereign purposes towards us that you can't help but be filled with joy and wonder as you reflect on what all this means, as you just sort of go through it and begin to sort of look at it verse by verse and begin to just ponder and reflect and meditate here what God is saying to us and what he has done for us. God is simply glorious beyond description. God does everything. God does everything for the praise of his glorious grace. You'll see this here uh, in Ephesians, these early chapters. And incredibly... Amazingly, we get to know and experience this glorious God ourselves through personal relationship through Jesus Christ, His Son. This great and glorious God, we actually get to experience Him. Paul starts off this letter uh, in massive praise over the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And then he begins to unpack what this good news of the gospel really is as he begins to show this for us here. Paul then prays for the Ephesians. He says, I'm praying that the eyes of your heart will be open. Not the physical eyes, of chap, but the eyes of our understanding, the eyes of our heart will be open, uh, open to see a growing and enlarging vision of the beauty of Jesus Christ. Paul wants the Ephesians and Paul wants us to today, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to see the priceless, glorious hope that we've been called to in Christ. If you go through these early stages of Ephesians, you'll see this as he unpacks these, what he calls these spiritual blessings in the heavenly places that we are called into and that we appropriate or apply to ourselves today in faith. Having said all that, though, Paul's very much aware of the world that we live in. He knows all about it. He doesn't live in a vacuum or a bubble. Paul was right in the middle of life as we would experience today and just as he experienced it back then. Paul knows we live in a fallen world where sinful humanity is capable of 
and carries out all manner of evil actions. Paul's not unaware of this. He's right in the middle of it. Paul knows it's a world that's filled with division. He's experienced that firsthand. Paul knows firsthand also of the tension that involves both Jew and Gentile here even in Ephesus. And we'll have a look at that a bit later on. Paul also knows firsthand how Rome of his day views themselves as the the superior people of the world. Everybody else who's not a Roman, the Romans would look down upon. Paul knows that firsthand. Paul also knows, though, is the power of the gospel to humble us, to unify us and fill us with Christ's love for people wherever they may, may be or people we may even ordinarily look down upon. He knows the power of the gospel to actually work in us. He's fully aware of the power of the Holy Spirit working in a person with a new heart that now seeks to live together for the good of the community. No longer living the individualistic life, like struggling that word out, to promote self, but looking to build for the good of the community. And that is a wonderful, glorious thing that the gospel does. It unifies us and takes us from being individuals to be community-minded and for the good of that. He sees how the gospel and how Jesus does that. And I think every single person alive, whether you are a believer or not a believer, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, harmony in community is a glorious thing. If you ask here the city of Greater Shepparton and their council, what would they like to see? They'd like to see a harmonious community coming together. Every living, breathing person wants that. They desire that, to see a harmonious community living together in togetherness for the common good. This is where Paul goes with the Ephesians today. He reminds them again about the gospel and he does this with good reason because we need to keep hearing about the gospel because we are very prone to forget about it. We're very prone to forget about where we've come from and what Jesus has done for us and also how we are to live out in the light of this gospel, how we have to live this out into the light of the salvation given to us, how this this life now is lived in the community around about us. And this is where Paul uh, goes for us here in this passage today. Firstly, no hope. No hope. In the first half of this chapter, Paul reminds the Ephesians uh, that they were dead in their sins. If you go back to the start of chapter 2, you'll see that it says that you were dead in your sins. You were spiritually lifeless. You had not one heartbeat that was towards God. And it is purely God's grace and mercy that has saved any one of you. Paul reminds them again of who they were and where they were before Jesus intervened in their lives, they were utterly hopeless. Paul says you were dead in your sins. You had not one heartbeat towards God. And he brings it up again here in verses 11 and 12. He says this, Therefore remember that at one time, so he say, cast your minds back. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember, so cast your mind back again, that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. I read a commentary earlier this week, sort of explained that predicament there, and it said this, they were Christless, they were stateless, they were friendless, they were hopeless and they were godless. It says there, remember that at one time you were separated from Christ. You were Christless. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were stateless. You had no state of home. You were friendless, strangers to the covenants of promise. 
and you are hopeless, no hope, and you are godless without God. A very depressing situation to think about. And I think what Paul utters there in those last couple of lines of that, or that last line of that verse is probably some of the saddest words in the Bible. They really, really are. Having no hope and without God. It's an amazing line when I read that. When you think about that line, when you think about those words, having no hope and without God in the world. Often when I read through that, particularly on, on, my, on my regular sort of reading through, it's funny, but, well it's not funny, but it's like those words hit me like a punch in the stomach. It's like, it just puts a deep knot within you when you think about that. Having no hope and without God. It's a deplorable position to be in. It's an utterly hopeless position to be in, to have no hope and to be without God. It leaves a real sinking feeling within me when I think about that. I often get this picture when I think about those words and I just begin to reflect on them. I see this picture of an astronaut who's spacewalking outside of the space station and then he becomes untethered from the space station and just drifts out into space, utterly without hope. It's a sad, sad picture here when we are separated from Christ. We have no hope and we are without God. And the whole backdrop here behind this godless state of all those things we just spoke about works itself out into unbelievable bitterness and hatred towards each other. When we are without hope and without God, stateless, Christless and friendless and all those things that come from being separated from God, this leads to incredibly deep, intense, sinful living. And particularly here, for Ephesus at this particular time, this led to centuries-old hostilities here between the Jew and the Gentile here in Paul's time. This Christless state, without God and without hope, led them to inhumane treatment of each other as it just worked out in their sinful attitudes. I read this the other day also in the commentary by John Stott and he had this to say here, which was a true account of Jew and Gentile. It says this, The Jew had an immense contempt for the Gentile. The Gentiles, said the Jews, were created by God to be the fuel for the fires of hell. God, they said, loves only Israel of all the nations that he had made. It was not even lawful to render help to a Gentile mother in her hour of sorest need, for that would simply be to bring another Gentile into the world. Until Christ came, the Gentiles were an object of contempt to the Jews. The barrier between them was absolute. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl or if a Jewish girl married a a Gentile boy, the funeral of that Jewish boy or girl was carried out. Such contact with a Gentile was the equivalent of death. Pretty strong words there, aren't they? Gives us a reflection here of the hostilities when we are left hopeless and without God and we allow that to work its way into our lives with such bitterness. If you're cut off from God and in this state and left to your own devices, as far as the Jews were concerned, they saw the Gentiles as no better than brown coal to fuel the fires of hell. 
That's all they thought they were good for. And when racial sin was left unchecked from the Jews' perspective and you heard of a Gentile woman being in labour, you would not lift a finger to help her. Why? Because that was only bringing more Gentile scum into the world in the mind of the Jew. Shows you the deep hostilities and it shows you the um, uh, brokenness and the corruption when we are hopeless and without God. It really does turn us into evil brutes and beasts. This sinful tension ran extremely deep amongst Jew and Gentiles. This is the world that Paul's writing this letter into here at Ephesus. And really, are we any different today around the world we look at? Uh, Ben's already mentioned here about communist China. We actually see an ethnic cleansing going on there. I saw a uh, a show on ABC the other week, and uh, you'll see it there in the media, but um, what they were doing, there's this Uyghur community, which is a minority group here in sort of western China, and they're being squeezed out of the land where they live on. Squeezed out bit by bit, and they've been living there for hundreds of years. The government is either brainwashing the Uyghur with its own propaganda, or worse still, many of them are just going missing, never to be seen again. They're looking upon them probably as no better than brown coal for the, to fuel the fires of hell. We see it again also with the tension between South Korea and North Korea. It's no different, is it? These people of the same descent, sharing as it were a common landmass, have built up an incredibly bitter divide. We thank God that we see some sort of types of attempts of reconciliation there, but it's been extreme bitterness for decades and decades. Again, South African apartheid from a few decades ago was a deplorable uh, position to be in. Here was one people group, as it were, treating another people group as subhuman, as we see this racial divide and racial tension work its way out. Paul is saying to the Ephesians here, Jew and Gentile, please remember where you've come from. Please remember where you were in this hopeless, godless state. See how it left you as bitter enemies as it worked its way out through your life as you allowed this corruption to do that. You were completely empty of any hope in this state, Paul was telling them. You are without God and without hope. And it really does do us good to remember these things at times. It really does help us to see the grace of God that has rescued us and saved us from these deplorable states of being without hope and without God. It does bring us back to see where we've come from. Paul, though, now begins to magnify this salvation that Jesus brings as we follow through this passage. He brings brings out now that Jesus is our hope. Jesus brings hope renewed. It says in verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is the intervening grace of God. Paul's painted a fairly hopeless position, state, bringing back to their remembrance again. But now he's saying, but now... God has intervened in your lives and this is the intervening grace of God. A sovereign work of God's grace through the person of Jesus Christ steps in and bridges this enormous gap, this enormous hopeless state between us and God. He steps in. Our sin has built this mighty chasm, incredibly large, a chasm of divide that we've created between us and God and between us and each other. Sin has so deceived us up until this point, that we are even enemies of God. 
If you read through earlier in, in Ephesians, Paul's already said that we are children of wrath. This gap has got so big and so entrenched in our hearts and minds that we have actually become enemies of God. But Jesus miraculously steps in to bridge this gap between us and God. Jesus does this by living this perfect righteousness life before God his Father, something we could never, ever do. Then Jesus dies on our behalf, perfectly becoming the satisfaction for God's holiness and his justice by yielding up his perfect life, something we could never do. And then we're told in verse 16 here about this life that he's yielded up on the cross. And he says this, that Jesus has killed the hostility. Jesus has taken no prisoners with this bitter, hostile position of being hopeless and without God. He's utterly killed its curse upon us and he's broken sin's power over us. Paul uses very dramatic language there. He's killed the hostility. And he mentions this here like three times in this passage here about this death of Jesus, which he really wants to signify this central part of the cross for us as believers in Christ. Verse 13, he mentions there the blood of Christ. Verse 14, through his flesh on the cross, he's mentioning there again this death of Jesus. And again, verse 16, this direct mention here of the cross. It's a real central figure here of this bridging the gap is what Christ has done for us at the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago. And then here in this supernatural miracle of the new birth, which is intimately linked with the cross, this salvation that we have, we are then recreated into a brand new person as we think about and as we see what the Spirit does within us. Look in verse 15. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself... One new man in place of the two, so making peace, bridging that gap, pulling that divide away so that Jesus now reconciles us back to the Father, making us into one new man. That's a glorious hope of the gospel. This is the hope that Jesus brings. The work of sin has gone deep, way deeper than we could ever imagine. So God doesn't just do a patch-up job on the sin. He doesn't just sort of slap a few band-aids on there. No, in nothing short of a miracle, the Holy Spirit comes and places within us a new heart and totally renews us within. We become this new person, new heart, new mind. It's as though the Holy Spirit is recreating a whole new race of people here as we think about this. We are no longer Jew or Gentile. We are now in Christ as followers of him. A brand new man from the two into one. Galatians actually picks this up for us. Another letter that Paul wrote uh, in the New Testament. He says this in Galatians 3, 25, 28. But now the faith has come. We are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptised into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is the unifying power of the cross. This is the ground-levelling power of the cross for all of humanity. We become new people with new desires and new hope. We actually become one in Christ Jesus, it tells us there in Galatians. That's amazing. 
that is the only way to break down these racial divides and racial hostilities, is to become a new person absolutely made in Christ Jesus. Because we can have all the talk fests we like about unity and peace. We can get together with discussions and we can try and iron out all of our differences. That's good. We've all seen the Middle East peace talks over decades and decades in the Middle East. But what happens there, at best, without Jesus in the middle of those conversations, or without Jesus actually taking control of our heart, at best, through all those discussions, all we could possibly put on there is a band-aid. Just maybe to try and patch up a bit of racial tension or a bit of you know, reconciliation. Again, I read earlier this week about a peace march in the USA. These people trying to march for peace. We, want, we, we just want world peace. So a bunch of people set off from Los Angeles in 1986, I was told, and it said this. In 1986, a peace march largely self-destructed through bickering. It began in Los Angeles only to stall in uh, Barstow, about 180 kilometres out of LA, where about half the 1,200 marchers went home. 600 have already bailed out. Soon, those remaining polarised, as in sort of took separate views, over those who were the real walkers and over those who rode in vehicles. Disputes are already happening in this peace march. They fought over a dress code. They decided to hold an election but disagreed over who could vote, finally allowing even children to vote. Then the election was declared invalid. Many entered the peace march not speaking to each other. That sometimes is the world's attempts to try and get peace. Started off in LA and let's march for peace. Got a few hours out the road and they've all broken up and arguing and fighting. The best we can do if we put our own attempts to it is perhaps just put a few band-aids over these things. It really must be Jesus Christ who can bring that ultimate peace to us. He's the only one who brings that hope to bridge that gap, to bridge that divide that has happened between us and God and between each other. This renewed hope, though, that Jesus brings for unity with God and each other must come with responsibilities. It must come with responsibilities. Look at what verse 19 says for us. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Fellow citizens and members of the household of God. If we could just grasp that priceless blessing. It is the absolute opposite to where Paul started at the start of this passage of being without hope and without God. We are now unbelievably called members of the household of God. That's who we are in Christ Jesus. We are members of the family of God. Have you ever stopped to think and meditate upon that? Again, we appropriate it by faith and we apply it by faith, but that's who I am. I'm a member of the household of God. Sure, I may have many, many challenges in life, many, many dramas in life, but I'm a member of the household of God. I'm God's son in Christ Jesus. Jesus has absolutely killed the hostility between God and myself. Through his work at the cross on our behalf, where I am now brought into his family. And if you are a believer trusting in Christ, that's exactly where you are too. Jesus has killed the hostility that was between us and God. 
absolutely put it to death. And now, God who is immeasurable, God the unlimited, the God of joy, the God of peace, the God of hope, the God of love, the God of delight now adopts me into his family and I'm a member of the household of God. I may be nobody in this world, and that really doesn't matter at the end of the day, because I'm a member of the household of God, the creator God who's made this world. It really does stop for us to just think about that at times. When the world does get us down, just reflect again upon who we are, members of the household of God. But, but along with being members of the family comes the family responsibilities. God has purposed us to become part of his family and praise God that he has. And he also purposes us to live out the family responsibilities. Ephesians 2.10 says this, For we are his workmanship, this is what Christ has done for us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship, and he has prepared us to walk in these good works. Our good works, or the responsibilities of being part of the family, spring from the salvation already worked in us and through us by Christ. It springs from that. We're not doing these good works to earn salvation. The salvation that God's already given to us now springboards us, as it were, into good works. The gospel isn't something simply to believe. It's also to be lived out. Yes, we do believe it, but we also must live it out. This inner transformation by the Holy Spirit must work itself out to an outer transformation in our lives. It's not something we just simply believe and leave it there as sort of intellectual head knowledge. It actually works out through our lives. If if it hasn't happened, if there's no outer change in our lives, something's gone really wrong in the process. Maybe, just maybe you're not a believer. If there's no outward transformation being shown visible in your life. Paul urges the Ephesians again with this here as well. Uh, uh, Chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Paul says it again. He urges us with intent to walk out or to live out this gospel. It's meant to be on show for people to see. This inner transformation works itself to the outer person. So for the Ephesians here, it's this. Paul is basically saying, guys, the gospel has broken down the walls of hostility in race or nationality divide. It has broken that down. Jew and Gentile can and should worship, fellowship and live in harmony together. The gospel enables you to do that. You are no longer identified as Jewish or Gentile as your primary identity. That is not who you are in a primary sense. Your primary or your first identity now is that you are in Christ Jesus. You are in him. You are members of God's household. And in his family, in God's family, there are no class barriers of rich and poor. There are no race barriers of Jew and Gentile. There are no intellectual barriers of academic and labourer. In fact, there are no barriers at all in God's family. That's the family you're in. Now, you haven't lost your identity as a Jew or a Gentile, just like I'm an Australian and some here could be African and some here could be American. We still have that identity, 
But primarily and firstly, we identify in Christ and his family. And sure, sure, for the Ephesians, you have centuries of cultural conditioning that has trained you to think of Gentiles as nothing more than brown coal as fuel for the fires of hell. And you will have to work through all of that and undo it. But you won't do that on your own. You'll do that through the power of the Holy Spirit, applying the gospel to your heart to pull down all these mindsets and attitudes that have been perhaps taught to you uh, by cultural conditioning through the years. And by God's grace, you will be able to meet with Jews and Gentiles as one family and fellowship in peace and harmony. That is the power of the gospel that does that. Nothing else can do that. And Paul would go on to say this. And that type of community will astound the greater community of Ephesus as they look around. They will say, how do you guys get on like this? You might say, I'm really glad you asked. Because I've got an opportunity to tell you about Jesus. Because it will astound the greater Ephesus. They'll look in and they say, we know about you Jew and Gentiles. We know you guys basically spit on each other when you walk past each other in the street. How is it that a bunch of 40 or 50 of you guys can get together here in this house in Ephesus and you all love each other? What does that? What pulls it together? What breaks down this racial divide? That's what Paul will be saying to the Ephesians as they're looking at this now, that we no longer have these hostilities between us. How will this look here in our own community as we think about that and even in the relationships we have with each other if we want to drill that down even further? Unfortunately, in some churches, we have allowed class to divide us. Maybe not exactly today, but maybe not too far away. I've done some reading on church history, and uh, perhaps only a few decades back, um, churches often had seating for the wealthy up the front, and the poorer class uh, would possibly get a spot down the back if there's any room left over, or maybe they might get standing room only. That was how churches set themselves up. They brought all the wealthy at the front, they got the best seats, and then the poor sort of just filtered around the back and wherever they could fit in. You or I would ask in that, where's the gospel in that? Where's the power of the gospel when that is taking place and when that's happening? What's the outside community meant to be thinking or saying if they saw that? All the rich are up the front and the poor are sort of you know, standing at the back. There's no gospel in that. I was travelling to Melbourne the other day uh, with a guy and he was telling me about some churches, um, some of them not too far away from here. And these churches are having bitter disputes over the shifting of a chair on their platform area. Some of you are laughing. It's really sad, actually. It's really sad. Uh, These churches, uh, one group wanted to leave the chair right where it was, another group wanted to shift the chair to another position in the church, probably to get it right out of the church. Uh, Things got so heated in this dispute over a chair that people were threatening to leave the church over the shifting of a chair. What is the community meant to think if they look in and see that? Where's the power of the gospel in that situation? This tension drills down even further, though, with us in our day-to-day relationships in this divide or division. Sometimes it's incredible how we allow bitterness and sinful attitudes to divide us. Sometimes it will even be as stupid as this. How people dress will divide us. 
It's amazing. What they wear will somehow be enough for us to look down on somebody because they're not wearing the same clothes like we're wearing. They're not dressing the same of us. It's amazing how that begins to work in our minds and we see them on a lower level than ourselves. We see them as second rate. It could be as simple as somebody going to school on an out-of-uniform day and someone comes along wearing just slightly different clothes to the rest of the group and they'll just look down on them as a second rate. They'll sort of think, oh, you're very bogan if you're only going to dress like that. It's, it's, it's a divide that sin breeds into our hearts. And it goes into social occasions outside of school where we all could be involved in. How quickly do we label somebody because they just don't dress the same as us? We actually begin to look down upon them. They're not as good as us. It's stupid and it's crazy and it's terrible, but these little things build divides between us. We begin to separate ourselves and we see them as inferior to us simply over what they might be wearing. This is the destruction of sin. And from those small divisions grow bigger divisions. What happens then is we may let jealousy breed in our hearts towards others. Because we could be the ones maybe not dressing as well as we think those other ones are and we could be jealous about them. This is what happens. And then we might let pride grow deep roots in our heart as well towards others in this divide. And if that happens, these roots produce only a few things. And normally it's anger and hatred and bitterness towards other people. That's what happens. And when we're living like that or thinking like that and allowing this divide to take place within us, we are playing right into the devil's hands. We are just dancing his tune. He has deceived us and he has fooled us. That's not living out the gospel. That is not living out the gospel when we allow that to take place. Now, unity doesn't mean conform. Uh, sorry, unity doesn't mean uniformity. In case you're thinking, well, okay, have we all got to dress the same? Then, so we all look, you know, like that. And what I mean by that is, God hasn't designed us to walk around like clones. That's not how God's designed us to be in that sense. Uh, we, we won't all have the exact same taste in life, and we will be different, and that is totally okay. It is ordained by God that we are different. This gives us a really rich diversity of people, which is really beautiful. Diversity within unity. So it's not, unity doesn't mean uniformity. But the gospel unity knows exactly where to draw the boundaries for this difference, though, between us. You know, you might think, hey, these guys just don't look like me. Ah, so what? So what? What does that really matter? They're different. They're wearing different clothes. The gospel says how we look doesn't really matter, it's not an issue. If you want to wear a vegan suit, which I saw some guys wearing a vegan suit to the grand, uh, not the grand final, the Brownlow Medal on Monday night, so what? Cool, wear a vegan suit. But I can imagine some people will be looking down on them for wearing a vegan suit, thinking, ah, oh, what sort of a bogan are you doing that? Wear a vegan suit, go for it. The gospel says it makes no difference whatsoever. The gospel says you're made in the image of God and you are precious in his sight despite what you may be wearing. Sure, you may be different to me in some things, but you are an image bearer of God and therefore I love you and I care for you. The gospel says I'm committed for your good. I'm here to help you see Jesus in me and I'm here to love and serve you no matter who you are or what you've done. Why? Why? Because that's what Jesus did for me. 
He, Jesus didn't look at me and see what sort of clothes I was wearing first or see what end of town I came from or see what sort of education I may have had. Jesus didn't pick and choose along class lines or race barriers at all. Jesus bled and died for people no matter who they were or where they come from and no matter, no matter what they have done. And that's the same power that Jesus gives us today to look upon other people and to break down these racial divides or any divides whatsoever as far as uh, that's concerned. Here's the church of Jesus Christ that I think it should look like. We should be, we should be a snapshot of God's kingdom right here. We should be a pocket in the community where people can look in and they see a people harmoniously loving and serving Jesus and each other. Doing it differently, not all as clones, but with a unified purpose and a unified mind. A glorious picture of the church should be or could be a multicultural church comprising many nations of people coming together uh, serving Jesus Christ. And I thank God that we have about four or five different nationalities. We have some Africans, we have some Asians, we have some Americans, South Africans. That is a glorious thing. That is a wonderful thing. That is a beautiful thing to see all these different nations and nationalities coming together to produce this diverse culture that the community can look in and see this is how the gospel shapes these people. This is how the gospel helps them to work together despite their differences. Wouldn't that be something, uh, wouldn't that say something to the community that we live in if they could see that? They could see this diverse range of cultures coming together and to love and serve Christ. I'd imagine if they could look in and see this harmonious community, they would, they would just wonder again, okay, what have you guys got? Because we know even, you know even in our apex clubs or rotary clubs how the divisions and divides come in there. If they can look in on a church group and say, what have you guys got? What are you guys doing that can actually weld you together in this harmony and in this unity? What is it? It's Jesus Christ. It is the only thing that can actually bring these walls of division down for us. And today, as we think about this, as we think about what the gospel's saying here to these Ephesians, maybe today as we think about these divides, if you think about these differences that we so easily allow ourselves to come into, maybe today we've got to think about repentance. Maybe today we've got to think about the way we've been looking at people. I've been looking at people. The way we so can quickly categorise people and put them in boxes and those boxes seem to find their way right down to the lowest uh, shelf on the, on the ladder. Maybe we've got to repent of that sin and we've got to look honestly and deeply at our attitudes, the way we've actually allowed racial uh, divide to creep into our own hearts. And I believe today that if we were to do this and then to pray for the Holy Spirit to come with His power to apply that gospel freshly to our hearts, we will be renewed not only in loving, serving Christ, but loving and serving all these different people that we have here, particularly in this greater shepherding community, which is a very multicultural community, that we want to reach out to them of every nationality. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today that we can uh, come and uh, gather around your word. We thank you for Ephesians chapter 2, this latter half that talks about breaking down this racial divide. Lord, any divide that we could foresee between us. We ask and pray today that, Lord, you would please forgive us of the sin that we've committed, Lord, in labelling people and putting them into boxes and then sort of lowering them down below us in life. Lord, please help us to apply the gospel to our hearts and our lives, to embrace all people as image bearers of you, 
and people that we want, Lord, to see them grow and flourish in Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, I pray today, please uh, forgive us of that sin and then renew us uh, in power going forward to reflect that out through our lives. Lord, help us today. Maybe there's people we need to go and say sorry to. Maybe there's people we just need to change the way we are thinking about them and who uh, do something, Lord, that really honours them and loves them today. If that be the case, I pray, Holy Spirit, we prompt that to our hearts, that we would not just think about that, but we would act upon your direction in our lives as we follow that through. Uh, Lord, today, thank you and praise you that we can open this word up together. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Just before we hand back to um, the uh, singers and the worship team, is there any thoughts or questions from that passage? No? Very good. Thanks, Bray.